Support for Character Crusade comes from audiobooks.com. Audiobooks make it possible to enjoy a story, learn something new, or find inspiration anytime, anywhere. And with more than 60,000 titles available, audiobooks.com makes it easy and convenient. Simply set up your account and start downloading your favorite books to your mobile device. Right now, you can start with a free 30-day trial and select the book of your choice to get started. Go to book.charactercrusade.com and start listening today. Greetings, Crusaders. You're listening to Character Crusade Skyrim Roleplay Workshop. I'm Stu, and I'm all alone in the studio tonight. Um, this is the Aranus Arcana Q&A special. Um, this entire episode is going to be dedicated to all the questions that have come in from fans of the Aranus Arcana story on YouTube. And, you know, I started out calling it a Let's Play. Technically, that's what it is. But it evolved into a story told in three acts and cut short before it was over, unfortunately. There were a lot of unanswered questions. And so this episode is, you know, it's you, the listener, and it's me. It's the Couch Warrior. And I'm here to answer these questions for you. Now, before we get into this, um, I would like to say a couple of things. This is a disclaimer. Um, doing a bunch of exposition about what I was planning to do in Act 4 of the story, um, I've been sort of conflicted about. We all have different ways that we absorb story, but the one thing that we all have in common 
is that we fill in the holes in our head. We interpret these stories in a way that makes sense to us. Um, we, we apply the scenarios that we read in a story um, to the context of our own lives. And so every story, even though we're all reading from the same pages or listening to the same audiobook, uh, the story is different for each one of us. So with that in mind, I would like to say that what you're going to hear tonight in this podcast is my vision of where I was planning to take the story. This is based on my notes. This is based on my thoughts on these characters, these storylines and scenarios. This is a discussion um, of the story arc as I planned to see it play out. For those of you who are either thinking of viewing Aranis Arcana for the first time, or for those of you who are big fans of the story and have created your own mythos in your head for what happens in Act 4, I would encourage you to consider whether or not you want to listen to this entire podcast. It's not that there are spoilers in here, but it's that I don't want my ideas to usurp or change your vision of who Fleet is, who Sumerian is, and what the story is. So I would ask you to consider well whether or not you want to listen to this because I am going to be a, I'm going to basically lay it all out there. I'm going to basically lay out for you the entire foundation for Act 4 and potentially the end of the epic tale of Fleet Featherstone. So if you've become attached to your own vision of this character and how he rode off into the sunset, you may want to consider whether or not this is the right material for you to listen to. I would certainly hate to destroy any legends that people have created in their own heads for how the story finishes. That being said, um, I am looking forward to this. Um, There are a lot of things that I had planned for this story. Uh, I think as you'll see as we we go through these questions, the ideas that I outlined for Act 4 were fairly grand in their scope. And I think there is some question as to whether I could have actually pulled it all off. Uh, It certainly would have been the most complicated act of this story that I had engineered to date. And certainly Act 3 was complicated. So, you have been forewarned. Um, So, without further ado, let's get into the questions.
Well, let's get right to it. Let's answer some questions. Um, I've tried to group these together so that uh, related questions I can answer sort of all at once. Um, I apologize to anyone whose questions I don't hit specifically enough, but, um, you know, with as many submissions as we had, trying to lump them together into um, themes seemed like the most efficient way to do this. But, um, you know, if, if I'm not hitting it right, feel free to send in another question via the form and, uh, you know, maybe we can do another one of these in the future or I could address it, you know, directly um, on the podcast even. So anyway, um, the first question I think I, I want to address here is, you know, just kind of this, this general idea of why the switch from Xbox to PC and how would the experience have been different if I stayed on Xbox. Well, my channel started as an Xbox 360 channel, and I was using an external video capture device, um, a, a Hotpog uh, HD video capture device, to capture video directly from my Xbox, and then um, you know dump it onto the PC for editing. Um, it was actually a great system, uh, but I think that. Once I got down the road of, of creating Aranus Arcana, I got to that point where I realized that I wanted to do more in terms of storytelling, it became pretty apparent to me that the limitations of the console were not going to be conducive to me telling the kind of story that I wanted to tell. And that was really what sparked the switch from console to PC. I began to bump up against the limitations of the console when it came to detailed storytelling. So in terms of, you know, how would it have been different? I, I think that, you know, Aranus Arcana, as told uh, on console exclusively, still would have been a good story. I think it still would have been entertaining, but it very much would have been more of a traditional Let's Play like you see uh, for most folks on YouTube. Just because I would not have had the level of control that I needed to, um, you know, bring in the sorts of characters that were creating the subplots I wanted, I would not have been able to do a lot of the cutscenes that I created. Um, I think one of the biggest advantages to being on a PC is really just simply access to the console commands, and more specifically, access to uh, the free camera. So, you know, it's very easy to fire up the console on the PC and, and basically toggle the free camera. And with that tool, I was able to do a lot of the, you know, you know kind of panning shots and, and zooming in and out. And I was able to set up scenes exactly like I wanted them and record that footage. I would not have been able to do that um, on the console. So, you know, the cinematic cutscenes would have been out for the most part. Um, the other thing that I think, you know, is a limiting factor, obviously there's, there's mods and so forth, which gave me, you know, a lot of additional flexibility. But I think in order to really give the story color, I needed to have more control over the NPCs. Um, and by control, I mean I needed to have the ability to make them do what I wanted them to. Um, I needed to be able to um, outfit them in gear that 
that allowed me to tell the story that I needed to tell. You, you know, if you if you look at the story as it is now, those scenes with Sithis, the mysterious figure that is Sithis in those scenes, I would not have been able to produce my own villain um, or my own gods or anything like that. Um, on the console. I would have had to use vanilla characters that everybody was familiar with. I would not have had access to any effects. So I think if it had stayed on Xbox, it would have been entertaining, but it would have been entertaining in a different way, a very different way than what we ended up with um, at the end of the story Um, or where I cut the story off, to be honest. It didn't really end. Uh, It certainly didn't end like I, I was hoping to end it. But... So that is the long answer to that question. I think it would have been great, but it would have lacked the cinematics and depth of story that I was able to get on PC. based upon gods that do not acknowledge piety or the sacrifices of their most devout.
So the, the question that I get frequently, many, many people ask me this. Um, we, we've gotten this through the web form, and it's also posted probably once a week uh, in the comments um, on YouTube on various videos, is whether or not I am going to do another Let's Play like I did with Aranis Arcana. And I would say, um, you know, right now the answer is no, just because the the amount of time and effort required to put together that kind of story is is more than I can handle right now. However, it is not the end of my uh, career as a Let's Player. And those of you who have been paying attention to my channel know that I have recently relaunched Dark Messenger. And the, the reason that I'm doing Dark Messenger is that it is a location-focused playthrough, which is, it lends itself more readily to uh, recording in bite-sized pieces, which is more in, in the realm of what I can handle at this time. So, um, whereas uh, a Let's Play like Aranus Arcana is a continuous story, in other words, you know, uh, in episode 10, we pick up where we left off at the end of episode 9. With uh, a Let's Play structure like Dark Messenger, I'm really focused on the character and that character going through a particular location. It's less about telling story and more about having an experience in Skyrim that is specific to a place um, and experiencing that that place together through that video, through the perspective of of Centrosi, or more specifically, uh, a bow-focused or a range attack-focused assassin. What that allows me to do is really start the camera rolling before I go into that dungeon or into that ruin or whatever it is, and uh, cut the scene when it's all over. And the time spent traveling in between those encounters is not recorded. So it gives me the latitude to very, you know, specifically pick and choose the locations that I, I want to take us through. Uh, it does not force me to record every aspect of what it is that I'm doing. So that that's the reason that I've decided to do that. It's something that I can carve up into bite-sized chunks. And I think that what most people don't realize is, is most Let's Players out there is specifically... Not Well, not specifically Skyrim, but I think most Let's Players would tell you that um, if you're going to play purely for enjoyment of the game, you're not going to do that during a Let's Play. Um, when, I, when I set up a Let's Play um, or a playthrough series, a lot of attention is paid to game setup and mods and documenting what I'm doing. It's imperative that I keep a clean game. It's imperative that I keep track of where I'm going and where I've been so that there's consistency in the story. It's it's really important that I'm keeping track of when I'm hitting record and when I'm, I'm stopping the recording. There's a ton of things that distract you from the actual fun and excitement of having, you know, played the game. So, if I'm going to sit down and play just purely for my own enjoyment, I am not going to record it. Um, I'm just going to play. And I'm not going to worry about all those details. I think a lot of times when people are submitting questions in you know, our comments and saying, can you please put 
game footage in the background of your podcast on YouTube, I'm thinking to myself, okay, yeah, that's great, but who's going to record that footage? If, if I recorded enough footage to put in the background of every one of our podcasts, it would mean that I would be literally recording everything that I do in Skyrim, which pretty much sucks the fun out of it for me. Um, yeah, it's, it's fun to play and, and record, but that's because there's a time box around it. The other thing that I, I think people don't realize is that um, it's, not, it's not easy to record this stuff, and it doesn't always work out cleanly. So, uh, you know, I may have a good game session going, but the second that I decide to record, I see a huge drop in my frames per second, right? And the experience can change. Right? So then I have to go back and I have to optimize and I have to do all kinds of things before I'm even at a point where I'm ready to start recording and do it in a way that I think has you know, good enough level of quality that I can present it to you and be proud of it. Right. So um, you know, just some things to think about. I mean, for me, I, I never say never. I would love it. I, I would love to see a time when I could launch into another epic Let's Play. And right now, um, that is not in the cards for me, but one of the things that I have been considering quite strongly is doing another epic-style Let's Play when uh, Elder Scrolls VI comes out, the new version of the game, when we have a new, fresh version of the game, probably starting out early on by doing a blind Let's Play that you can all follow along with uh, Couch Warrior. Um, channel and go through a blind let's play of a brand new game but then once we get far enough through that uh, everybody has some familiarity with some of the primary quest lines going through and considering maybe another epic playthrough so I I hope that um, is a good enough answer for now what you can look forward to is more dark messenger and you know that is a series that'll be evolving over time as as I you know, start to get more comfortable with it. One thing to remember about Dark Messenger is Dark Messenger was never recorded on PC. So the reboot of Dark Messenger is the first time that Centrosi has actually been played on PC and not on Xbox. So there's a lot of exploration left there to do as well. And I'm very excited about the direction that, uh, you know, that that is going to take me. forsaken blades 
the sweet embrace of their own fetid, poisonous wines. It will be dark and glorious work. So this is a frequently asked question. It came up a lot in comments, um, and it, it, it was it's a question that I've always been very cagey about, and that has to do with Linway. Is he ever going to kill Linway? Is he ever going to encounter Linway? Has he forgotten about Linway? What about Linway? Well, um, I guess my first response would be how interesting a story would it have been if he had killed Linway at the end of Act 1? It would not have been. And I, I think, um, you know, Linway always plays a role in the story, but in later acts of the story, it, it's more of a subconscious role. It's more of a, he, he plays more of this, this role of, of causing us to think back and have a distant reminder of, of where Fleet came from. Uh, you know, I think with any character, we have to start by having some kind of baseline, and then over time, the character evolves, and they they move from one conflict to the next conflict, and, you know, between these conflicts, we see changes in personality and objectives and all of these things. I think that Fleet's attitude towards Linway was a constantly evolving a constantly evolving one. So at the beginning of the story, you remember, he was very focused on trying to track down Linway. It was what brought him to Skyrim in the first place. Otherwise, he may not have, have come there at all. It was this understanding that Linway was, was here somewhere. I just have to find him. And so a lot of the things that he did in um, the the early parts of Act 1 were driven by... How can I find Linway? 
if I get associated with the thieves guild in the underworld, maybe I can, you know, keep my ear to the ground and learn something about his fate or his location. If I get involved with the Dark Brotherhood, that gives me one more avenue to get information about the location of Linway, right? So the the objective of finding Linway and getting revenge early on in the story was a way that I could guide Fleet toward the quest lines that I wanted to. It made sense for him to get involved with those groups to try to get more intelligence, right, on, on what was going on and make decisions about what to do next. But in Act 2, as we saw Fleet start to evolve into more of a spiritual person and we start to see the beginnings of this psychotic break where um, we see the introduction of the Sumerian personality and we see the Sumerian personality slowly starting to take more and more control. Um, Linway goes from becoming the focus or the driver to taking a back seat. And now the driver is is kind of around the spirituality of, of Sumerian and his objectives. Um, and, and it becomes less about fleet. Um, we, we start to see these, these larger, sort of more um, abstract, Objectives being the driver in Act 2, until we get into um, Act 3, and we really start to see this, this more of a total transformation into two very distinct personalities, the personality of Fleet and the personality of Sumerian. And by this time, we, we begin to understand that, that Linway now is a very distant consideration because Fleet has much bigger fish to fry. He has an entity living inside his body, inside his mind, that is interrupting his ability to live his life the way that he wants to. And as we get further into Act 3, we begin to understand more and more about the entity of Sumerian and understand that this this is not simply, uh, you know, something he could ignore. This is an entity that he has to negotiate with and he has to fight with for control of the vessel. And so at that point, Linway is a very, very distant memory. Linway is the spark that brings Fleet to Skyrim and brings him in to these organizations in the Thieves Guild and the Dark Brotherhood. That, that drive him forward, but Linway is no longer the focus. Now, the, the crux of the question here then is, um, does Fleet ever get to his original goal of killing Linway? I do not know if Fleet will, would have ever gotten to the point of killing Linway, but I can tell you with absolute certainty that Linway was going to play a role in Act 4. Linway was going to make an appearance and he was going to be there in a very real sense. And the the plan was that Linway would start to factor into the story in a more significant way and we would begin to understand that there was a relationship between uh, Fleet's 
former friend Linway and his father Senshin, and we would begin to understand that perhaps Fleet being thrown in prison, being abandoned by Linway, was not an accident, was not something that Linway did of his own volition, but was a very carefully orchestrated situation um, that, that, was, that was orchestrated by Senshin as a way of getting the sort of control he needed over his son. I think one of the things that we've come to realize at, at the end of, of Act 3 was that Senshin had a very specific and diabolical plan where his son Fleet was concerned, and that the whole prison experience for Fleet was formative, and it transformed him into something else, something deadlier, but that it was a passage. It was a passage that he went through, and something happened to him in that prison that's not been entirely explained, but that transformed him into the creature that he became in Act 3. This sort of deadly and conflicted and dark killing machine. So uh, I, I think that my plan was that in Act 4, we were going to have this reveal that there was a relationship between Linway and Senshin, some kind of a partnership going on in which Linway was being um, basically uh, compensated for helping Senshin to get his, his son Fleet into uh, this kind of, I don't know, this, this kind of formative space where Senshin could, could transform him. I think, when I think about th- that whole scenario, one of the things that was on my mind at the time was Lin- Linway fits into this story in more of a significant way. He is not simply an afterthought. He's not simply a distant character who causes this problem at the beginning and then goes away. He would have a much more significant role in the story. And as I thought about Senshin and, and him trying to transform Fleet into the killing machine he needed him to be, um, I thought about I, I thought about things like, you know, the origin of Wolverine, or uh, if, if anybody is familiar with V for Vendetta, when we have these moments where an individual is 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 turned into into this this creature which is a representation of their full potential but in order for that to happen they have to be broken down to nothing and so this is kind of how i viewed fleet in this situation um we we have this sort of implied idea that sentient somehow knows he somehow knows that fleet has the seed of the dragonborn inside him and he knows it at a very early early stage and it sets up the whole scenario for the death of fleet's mother as she tries to take the child away from sension and sension takes possession back right of the child um so he understands that he has an individual of with potentially limitless power under his control so the question is what do we do with this person? Um, this person 
with, with limitless potential is useless dissension unless he lives up to his full potential. So what I was trying to do is engineer a situation where Senjin basically sees the opportunity to turn Fleet into this very, very powerful tool if he can find a way to break him down first. And Lin Wei, that character, kind of played a role in setting the stage for Fleet's descent into darkness, if you will. So I always saw, uh, you know, that character as perhaps being being paid by Senshin to kind of put together um, a scenario where where Fleet kind of goes down the wrong path. He he gets involved with the wrong crowd, and he racks up a lot of really sort of unsavory deeds that um, that sort of spoil his character <laughs> and make people predisposed not to trust him. And then when the betrayal happens, um, having having Fleet tossed into the prison of his choice is not a problem for Senshin. And once he's captured in this dark place, Senshin is free to manipulate him um, in sort of uh, magical and dark and covert ways to transform him into what he wanted him to be. And of course, the one thing that Senshin doesn't account for is the fact that he would do such a good job that Fleet would find the capacity to actually escape prison and run off on his own. And that is really, to me, um, the linchpin of the whole thing. Senshin is trying to transform Fleet into a, into a killing tool that he can control, but what he doesn't anticipate is that Fleet would escape and run to Skyrim uh, in pursuit of Linway, thinking that Linway was the problem. And so now we have a scenario where Fleet is chasing the wrong guy, really, technically, and Senshin has lost control of, of the, the tool that he plans to use for conquest and now is forced into a position where he has to go and try to not only find Fleet and regain control of him, but regain control of this individual who has become such a deadly killing machine that anyone he he puts up against him is eliminated. So now, not only is he difficult to find, but he's extraordinarily difficult to capture. So that is a very long answer to that question, but as you can see, it illustrates the fact that Linway was to play a very prominent role all along. Now, whether that resulted in Linway dying or not, I don't know. There was a part of me that said that, you know, Linway in this scenario would never die there would always be something of Linway out there, but it could have also been used, I think, um, as a very um, sort of um, interesting and shocking way to reveal the full scope of Senshin's treachery. Um, I was always nervous about Linway. I was always nervous about what would happen to the story if Linway was killed. If he killed Linway, would anybody care about the story anymore? And... Um, I never really got a chance to test that answer, but uh, that gives you a, a sense for how he would fit into the story.
Let's not be coy, shall we? It is a waste of our precious time. I'm the one who slit your sister's throat. Shall I paint you a picture? Why are you doing this? Who is this brother? What are you talking about? Why, Fleet, of course. The mighty Empyrean. Wielder of swords and high ideals, he's come to save all of Tamriel from itself. Surely you've met him. Perhaps you were not paying attention when his highness stepped before you. Yerevel, I am truly disappointed. Well, I thought you the cunning huntress. How did you miss the signs? I present you your writ and your deed. I suggest you run back to your Valenwood, lest you become further entangled with us. Tell me what happened on the mountain. How did you do it? Is Elwyn dead? Everyone is dead, my dear. Everyone. Everyone? But how? My brother did not finish the work. Fear not. I am something of a stickler for detail. As is often the case, it was left to me to clean up the mess, and clean it I did. Thank you for your assistance, Mirabel. I could not have done it without you. But you said it was about documents. Papers implicating the Thalmor. Did I? Why the crisis of conscience all of a sudden, my dear? Was it not you who took so much delight in the slaughter of an innocent merchant? True, it was not your arrow that took him, but surely you are not pronouncing yourself innocent in the affair. That would be somewhat dishonest, don't you think? Honestly, I cannot divine the origin of the shock I see written on your face. There was a party, filled with important people, wealthy people. I assure you, the wealthy burn just as the poor. By the gods. Okay, so if you thought the the Linway question or answer to the Linway question was complicated, um, now now we're going to go even deeper. And uh, to kick this one off, um, I, I'm going to actually just read a question um, that was submitted by Connor. Um, hello, Connor. Connor is uh, from Connecticut. And he asks this question. In terms of what we have seen of Fleet in both uh, the gallery page 
and the old trailer videos you've released, what is the story behind Fleet's vampirism? Is it actually vampirism? Why did or would he take the dark gift? And how would this affect Sumerian and his convictions and beliefs on on vampires and immortality? That is a good question. And the reason that um, I said this was complicated is because this question plays directly into the entire uh, story arc for Act 4. Let's, let's start by examining how we finished Act 3. We finished Act 3 with, um, you know, this obvious conflict now. We, we have this obvious conflict between Sumerian and Fleet. And Sumerian goes dormant. And we have Fleet in, in sort of a, um, a strange... Um, with a strange sense of consideration for Sumerian, uh, they start referring to each other as brothers, uh, and even Fleet does this. And we start to see a, a much more distinct separation in their personalities. Now they are talking about each other in a completely different sense. And it feels like um, we, we have... A, a more distinct separation of personalities. And one of the things that we talked about at the end of Act 4 were uh, the steps that uh, were taken by Haldir to find a way to separate their personalities such in such a way that um, they were not able to co-opt or read each other's thoughts. And for Haldir, if you remember... I mean, a lot of the stuff that that he was attempting to do, uh, all of it was untested, and all of it was just theory to him. But the outcome was that what we we ended up with was two distinct personalities with their own sets of memories and a complete inability to monitor each other's thoughts and actions. Prior to that, we had a scenario where Anything that Fleet was doing or thinking, Sumerian was privy to. So uh, what that allowed Sumerian to do was have an inordinate amount of control, uh, you know, in trying to influence what Fleet was doing. And now suddenly we find a, a scenario where we've got two distinct personalities and Sumerian's completely cut off from control. And the only way that Sumerian and Fleet can speak to one another is in the embrace, which is a gift given to them by Fleet's mother in that encounter, is the embrace. And Sumerian learns how to call upon the embrace first, but um, at the very beginning of Act 4, in the first video I released there, we see that that Fleet has acquired the ability to... Um, get into the embrace on his own without Sumerian's assistance. And he can do that at any time. So um, what we have is this kind of distinct separation of personalities. And the idea for Act 4 was that we were going to start to see what these two individuals living in the same body would each do independently when they had control. 
and we were going to see encounters between the two of them inside the embrace. But once they were outside the embrace, Sumerian did not know what Fleet was going to do and couldn't control it, and vice versa. So, um, you know, at the beginning of Act 4, we understand that Sumerian has been uh, dormant at the end of Act 3. Fleet has taken some action to help his brother save face as leader of the Dark Brotherhood. Um, you know, being a little bit, uh, you know, confused and, and not completely understanding where Sumerian is gone, but just knowing that he's gone. Um, and so going into Act 4, that's where we see Haldir actually perform the Black Sacrament, and he's waiting to see who's going to show up. And who shows up, of course, is Sumerian. Now, let's, let's also make note of the fact that at the beginning of Act 4 of that story, um, what I am saying is uh, we have Haldir telling the story, so we're getting the story from Haldir's perspective in kind of a narrative way, and then we're taking jumps back in time to kind of have a reveal about what happened. So the encounter between Haldir and Sumerian uh, takes place roughly two weeks after the, after the emperor is killed. And uh, we see kind of a scenario where uh, Fleet is confronting Sumerian in the embrace and basically telling him, uh, I understand we're separate personalities right now, but I'm telling you, you know, I understand that we both share the same body. And if you do anything to harm my friends, I have no qualms about jumping off a cliff and taking this body away from you. So that is Fleet's way of getting leverage over Sumerian and and kind of putting them on an equal footing. So I was really trying to start Act 4 by putting them on an equal footing and, and kind of understanding uh, where the power was between them um, and, and then that would sort of set the stage for what each of them would do next. So if we look at their separate personalities, at the beginning of Act 4, we see Fleet. He is kind of um, sort of a wild, sort of free spirit, uh, focused on, on battle and camaraderie and friendship, not caring quite so much anymore about things like the rule of law, uh, about order. I considered uh, Fleet to be a chaotic kind of um, personality, which uh, is kind of ironic when you think about it because it, it gets at the essence of what we had come to believe Sithis was all about, that Sithis was all about um, sowing the seeds of chaos because in chaos comes creation, right? And we, we had addressed this uh, several times. Um, so what was important to me was to kind of illustrate how these two were different. So when I think about them in that sense, I think of Fleet as representing chaos and Sumerian representing order. And, and, and Sumerian representing order in, in kind of the dark sense. So when I think of Fleet as chaos, basically what I was engineering there is that because Fleet was all about chaos and, and he was kind of all about, you know, the spoils of war and fighting for the sheer pleasure of it, um, Fleet was going to embark on the Civil War quest line, 
and he was going to um, take sides with the Imperials, and he was going to fight with his mercenary group as free agents working for the Imperials. And so he was starting to assemble his mercenary group, and that mercenary group uh, consisted of, uh, you know, um, Palandri. We saw Palandri, the Dark Elf, coming back as kind of um, a spell sword type of a, a character. And if you'll remember, Palandri played a bit of a role in um, rescuing Fleet and his comrades after um, a, a fairly nasty encounter with the Thalmor at the Shrine of Boethia. So Palandri comes back as a recurring character and joins uh, the Burned Company, which is our mercenary group headed by Fleet Featherstone. We, we also see the return of Lydia uh, as a full-fledged vampire. I had not, of course, gotten to the point in the story of talking about how she'd be reintroduced to the group, but we saw her return. We saw um, Haldir coming in as, as a mage in that group. And then we also saw uh, the introduction of um, the orc. And the orc was the, the orc chieftain that uh, he had encountered in Act 3 um, as he was um, pursuing some of his missions. I, I wish I could remember the orc's name. I can't remember it now. Uh, but anyways, so we, we had this kind of tight group that was called the Burned Company, basically a mercenary group. And the way that I'm explaining this, the way I had written the story, is that it was Fleet's decision to take the dark gift of vampirism. And it, it was after um, it, it was after a, a long period of consideration that Fleet decides to take the dark gift. And he takes that gift for two reasons. One is that he believes that the advantages of the uh, gift of vampirism are going to help him on the battlefield during the Civil War. And then the other is he wants to put a thumb in the eye of Sumerian. So he does it quite intentionally because he knows that the whole idea of vampirism is something that is, um, uh, I, I guess, looked upon negatively um, by Sumerian. Um, so this was his way of, of kind of sticking a thumb in Sumerian's eye after all the manipulation um, he suffered at the hands of Sumerian in Act 3. So he's basically reasserting control and saying, this is my body, this is a decision I'm making, and we are taking this gift because I want it, and I, I think it's going to be an advantage, and basically screw you. So that that is where the vampirism comes from. Now, in terms of actually using the vampire powers and playing those vampire powers, there are some powers that um, obviously uh, Sumerian would be forced to use, whether he liked it or not, just because they're passive sort of innate abilities. But the plan was that we would have seen a lot more use of, of the vampire powers from Fleet than we would have seen from Sumerian. Sumerian would, have, would, would be very conflicted about this. He, he would hate it, but there's literally nothing that he can do about it, right? 
Um, he can cure the vampirism, but who's to say that, you know, his brother is not just going to do it all over again. After all, he is traveling now with, with a vampire in, in Lydia. So we, we have this kind of stalemate, right? Um, where Fleet gets his, his revenge, albeit a, sort of a childish form of revenge. He gets his revenge. But uh, that was kind of the idea there. It was, it was really Fleet making a statement and saying, I am going to do this. And uh, Sumerian being forced to live with the consequences. Now, one of the unforeseen consequences for Fleet was that this would in part be the impetus for what Sumerian did next. One of the big bombshells that I was planning for the beginning of Act 4 was that Fleet... um, he he decides to discover this idea of vampirism. He decides to pursue the idea of vampirism by contacting the Dawn Guard. He gets involved with the Dawn Guard, and we would see Fleet go through this quest where he basically rescues Serana, he delivers her to Harkon, he accepts the gift of the Vampire Lord, becomes the vampire. But then what happens is he inadvertently inadvertently, I say, (laughs) um, draws the vampires back to the Dark Brotherhood Sanctuary. And the way that I had set this up is that, you know, Harkon sees this individual who just shows up out of nowhere, accepts the gift, obviously has some some great power and some things going on, um, and decides that that fleet is a threat And so what I had engineered early on in Act 4 was a vampire, a full-on vampire attack on the Dark Brotherhood Sanctuary in Dawnstar, uh, which which basically destroys their ability to use that sanctuary for the Dark Brotherhood anymore and has the effect of causing Sumerian to basically declare war on Lord Harkon and the vampires at Volcahar. And this was going to be a tricky thing for me to put together, but I, I, I had kind of engineered a way to do this, a way for Fleet to accept the gift of the Vampire Lord, but still declare war on the vampires. And so I was very excited about this aspect. Um, there is, uh, I have several episodes of footage already put together for act four which some of which you're watching right now if you're if you're watching uh if you're listening to this podcast on youtube you're also seeing lost footage from various uh pieces i had put together for act four one of those is a fairly epic battle at the dawn star sanctuary between a large number of vampires and um the remnants of the dark brotherhood and it really was going to set the stage for what was to come next. And that was a full pursuit by Sumerian of the Dark, um, of the um, Dawn Guard DLC, so the Vampire questline, and a full pursuit of the Civil War questline by Fleet. And so uh, what we were going to be seeing there 
was kind of a, an alternating point of view. And that, this is why I launched two intros. I launched a Sumerian intro and I launched a fleet intro. And depending on which character was primarily in control during that bit of storytelling, that would dictate which intro I would use. So some episodes of Aranus Arcana would be Sumerian episodes, and some episodes would be fleet episodes, and I would use the appropriate intro depending on which one it was. So we were going to see two very distinct and, and very different kinds of experiences, um, kind of the savage sort of um, warlike brutality of fleet as he fought in the Civil War, and then the dark sort of clandestined and surgical style of guerrilla warfare by Sumerian against the vampires. And, and that is kind of what I was setting up. So essentially, uh, Sumerian w- was going to take action against the vampires, but the whole thing that set that up was this sort of um, childish, childish idea that Fleet had to basically stick it to Sumerian by becoming a vampire, but inadvertently leading the vampires straight to the Dark Brotherhood's lair, which put the Dark Brotherhood at risk once again uh, and came very close to killing Sumerian in the process. So that is the scenario that we were looking at um, going into Act 4. I hope that helps to explain. I, I know there was a lot of confusion and consternation after all the things that we talked about on Sumerian's beliefs on vampirism to see a trailer come out that distinctly showed a fleet turning into a cloud of bats and flying away. Um, that was the whole point, really, to, to sort of cast some mystery on the whole story and what was coming in Act 4. Whose name do you invoke in this moment, Mirabelle? Tell me, which do you think is listening? I... No one is listening, Mirabelle. Not the gods, not the spirits of your dead ancestors, not the dark princes. There's only the dark, silent void, and this world is but an infinitesimal speck floating in its dark wastes. You and I are nothing. Yes, I returned to finish what my dear brother left unfinished, and I released them all into the void. They do not burn, they are not at peace, they are not in the almighty ecstasy of their gods embrace. That is the greatest lie of all. They have all simply been unmade. Now, Another day lapses, and there's much work to be done. More? What more could there possibly be? My dear foolish girl, you are lovely as the sunrise, but oh so blind. I can see why my brother loves you so. The souls of the unmade await me. They await the sweet release of the void. 
I must not keep him waiting. The Dread Father requires yet another meaningless act of supplication. I would exercise caution with the gods, my dear. Their gluttonous appetite for worship has no bounds. In the end, our souls are all we have that is truly ours. Do not give yours away without first understanding its value. So a related question on the vampirism um, was specifically targeted at, at Lydia. And um, so, so now that I'm thinking about it, um, the orc that I mentioned earlier, who was um, part of the Burned Company mercenary group, that is Burgook. That's Burgook. And he's, he's based in the, um, uh, it's the orc stronghold that's up near Markarth. So Burgook was the, the other character. Um, th- there's been a question specifically about Lydia. Um, we saw Lydia transform into a vampire, become this vampire, and then kind of vanish. And the sense was that her disappearance was because she was trying to avoid Fleet, because she had come to understand that Fleet had much disdain for vampires and that it was best if she just made herself scarce, right? Well, we also know that uh, Nefei had made a point of confessing to Fleet what had really happened, that Lydia had been transformed into a vampire and that she had vanished and that uh, Nefei had, had taken steps to help her recover from her vampirism to the point where she could escape. And we also know that Valfar was involved in that effort. And then uh, we saw uh, the interaction of those three characters kind of, they, they all sort of vanished in different ways. Um, Valfar kind of disappeared. Lydia disappeared. Uh, Nefei, we were led to believe, was rotting in prison in Windhelm. Um, and that left Fleet and Sumerian kind of free to pursue some other activities in Solstheim. Um, particularly with the um, confrontation with uh, our Bosmer assassin, uh, Miravel, and her sister, right? 
But one of these questions was, what, what was really to come of, of Lydia? What was the exploration of, of, of her character and, and her return? And in the lost footage, uh, there is a scene between Fleet and Lydia. And what we discover is that Lydia is in hiding, but she has such a profound loyalty to Fleet and loyalty to her responsibility, this, this responsibility that she feels as Fleet's protector, that she, she has a desire to not be too far away from him at any given time. And she's essentially taken up residence in a cave underneath the eagle's nest. And uh, Fleet is completely unaware of the fact that she is there until one night he hears noise inside the house and he goes to explore what's going on and he 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 finds that that somebody was in the house somebody has has just left the house and he tracks this individual down underground only to discover that it's Lydia and that she's hiding underground and they have a confrontation and during that confrontation she reveals to Fleet in complete shame that she is a vampire and that she's hiding from him because of her shame uh, for becoming what it, the very thing that he despises most. And that whole situation is resolved by Fleet revealing to her that he too is a vampire. And they have this moment where they're sort of standing face to face, both in vampire lord form um, and they, they have this kind of encounter and there's a reconciliation and there's an acceptance and that is kind of where th- that is the moment where the burned company is born the burned company is actually born out of the relationship between Lydia and Fleet and this is a relationship based on mutual respect um, and, and together we, we start to see them uh, creating the framework for the group that will become um, the Burned Company Mercenary Group. So that is kind of how that was all going to come together. So then the other question that has come up is, what's the deal with Nefei? She, she actually um, makes an appearance in one of the intro teasers that I put out, the Sumerian teaser specifically. And uh, the deal with that is that we, we kind of un, we kind of begin to understand at the toward the end of Act Three that she has some animosity toward Fleet. Um, she believes that you know she's been kept in the dark. She believes that she's being treated like a child. But on top of all that, we have the reveal through Haldir that. Fleet, as a younger man, was directly responsible for the imprisonment um, of Nefe's father. And this reveal comes through some exposition from Haldir, but also through um, a flashback where we um, we see a young Breton girl interacting with Fleet as a boy, and the, the question is, who is this little girl? Well, what, what we discover through this encounter between 
Haldir and Nefei is that that little girl is Nefei and that uh, her parents work in the employ of of Sension in the palace and that Fleet uh, as a as a troubled youth uh, as a as a person who is going down the wrong path has kind of engineered a situation where Nefei's father takes the blame for some of the crimes that he's committing. And incidentally, it is also, I believe, in the same flashback that we, we catch a glimpse of Linway and we see uh, Fleet's interaction with Linway as a young man and we start to get the sense that Linway has... Um, has an inordinate amount of control over Fleet and is and is influencing Fleet to do some pretty despicable things. And one of the things that comes from that, of course, is the imprisonment of Nefei's father, who eventually um, becomes very, very ill and then uh, passes away. And with this reveal, um, we see kind of a complete break in the relationship between Fleet and Nefei. Uh, what we do not see is Fleet's reaction to that because Fleet is unaware of the break. Haldir is, is the one uh, who's, through whose eyes we experience the break um, in this conversation between Haldir and Nefei as she comes to the realization that it, it's the man that she's been following for so long that's directly responsible for her father's um, fall into misery. So what, what happens, of course, is that uh, we, we get the story secondhand from Palandry that she has been thrown in prison uh, in Windhelm, um, largely due to her own mistakes, but to some degree, um, these mistakes are enhanced by some of the things that she's been engaged in with or because of Fleet or Sumerian. So how does that bring us to the point where Nefei comes back into the story? Well, with a complete separation between the two personalities of, of Fleet and Sumerian, Sumerian is at a stage where in order for him to survive, uh, with the vampires uh, attacking, with the Dark Brotherhood in disarray once again, um... Sumerian is forced to start making allies in any way that he can. And one of the objectives for Sumerian is going to be to go to Windhelm and rescue Nefei from prison. Now, at this point, Sumerian does not know that Nefei uh, is, is anything other than happy with him, right? So the idea is that, you know, he's going to go to rescue her and then at that point discover... Um, all of the ill will that she has towards Fleet. And this is a point also at which Sumerian would be able to exploit the fact that there is a complete separation between himself and Fleet, and he is in a position to turn her against Fleet and step in himself as the father figure and kind of take the place of Fleet and as the father that she's lost... And, and gain control over her and gain her uh, her assistance as an ally. 
So what what we are going to what we were going to see in Act Four is a very very tight relationship between Nefei and Sumerian, and that was going to be the foil to the very tight relationship that we were seeing between Miravel and Fleet. So we've always kind of seen throughout their interaction that Nefei always kind of wanted her relationship with Fleet to be more. Um, she was interested in a romantic relationship where Fleet viewed their relationship as a brother-sister or kind of mentor-student type of relationship. Well, in order to get what he wants, Sumerian is definitely um, prepared to encourage those feelings, those romantic feelings that, that Nefei has and would have, um, would have definitely, I think, capitalized on that to gain her loyalty. So that was kind of what we were setting up, um, kind of a, a little bit of a war here also between the two brothers, even though they were pursuing their own separate conflicts, we were going to see time and time again the conflict between the two and the um, supporting characters, characters such as Miravel and Nefei and Lydia uh, and, and Valfar were going to play a role in that. Now, one question that's come up a lot is what happened to Valfar? <laughs> well, obviously, from the very beginning, Valfar was um, a rabid supporter of the Stormcloaks. And what we do know of Fleet is that he was uh, an Imperial sympathizer. So how does that all play out? Well, we were going to see a very nice and I think exciting subplot starting to form in Act 4 where we have two characters in Fleet and Valfar who had a lot of respect for one another as individuals, but were going to be forced to fight against one another in the Civil War. And you can imagine all of the, all of the um, conflict and you know potential uh, interesting subplots that 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 would start to to put together. I had only just begun to explore how how that would all fit together but that was the scenario that i was establishing for act four uh, between valfar and fleet so in in focusing a bit more on sumerian and his objectives obviously fleet is putting together his own group he's going to have a tight group of friends he's going to have a lot of support he's going to be out there in the world fighting the civil war and we've got sumerian who's who's largely isolated now. Now that he's his own independent personality, he cannot ex expect to get any support from, from Haldir. He can't expect to get support from Lydia. He's essentially been cut off. So gaining uh, Nefei's support is the first step. But what, what is he to do? He can't exactly wage war against a whole clan of vampires independently. So he has some resources to leverage where the Dark Brotherhood is concerned, but with the attack on the Dark Brotherhood, I've basically taken those resources away from him because once the attack happens, um, Nazir and Babette are going to be forced to relocate 
the entire Dark Brotherhood from the Dawnstar Sanctuary to a hidden location. So Sumerian's first order of business is finding a way to relocate uh, the Dark Brotherhood to a safe place. And what happens in Act 4 is that Sumerian acquires a guardian angel. He receives a mysterious note. And this note basically says, I understand you're in dire straits. I'm a friend. I want to meet with you. I think that you and I share some of the same goals. And so he goes to a mysterious underground temple. And he has an encounter with a mysterious individual who turns out to be Centrosi. Yes, I was going to introduce in Act 4 Centrosi into the story as a supporting character. Centrosi the Vampire has an encounter with Sumerian the Vampire and says, I share your disdain of the Volcahar clan. They have done me wrong as well. Let us combine forces to fight them together. And Centrosi brings some things to the table. What he brings to the table is not only his fighting ability, but he has some money and resources. He has access to this underground temple, which he turns over to um, the Dark Brotherhood so they can set up shop there and resume activity. So he gives them safe haven. And then together, Sumerian and Centrosi hatch a plan to wage war against the vampires, uh, the Volcahar clan uh, of vampires. And this whole scenario set the stage for um, kind of a, a story I was going to tell about the building of the structure that would be required in order for them to successfully wage war um, against Lord Harkon and his minions. And this was going to be done through subterfuge, right? So we have a small group pitted against a large group, and the objective, uh, according to the Sumerian doctrines, is that you have to make your enemy believe that you're larger than you really are. So this is where I had engineered the whole idea of kind of a secretive cult-like group called the Children of Lorcan. And the children of Lorcan were going to be kind of a group formed by uh, Sumerian and Centrosi together uh, for the sole purpose of striking fear into the hearts of vampires who would oppose them. And I had, uh, you know, captured some footage. There are screenshots out there too that I that I can share of of Centrosi and Sumerian actually working together, and they are dressed in an identical fashion and both wearing matching masks that has really sort of a creepy effect. So the idea was they were going to kind of wage a, a guerrilla war against Volcahar under the guise of the children of Lorcan and, and really try to, um, try to frighten their enemy into making mistakes. And that sort of was... That was something that I was extremely excited about. The, the reveal of pulling uh, Centrosi into the story was, was, I think, major, and having him be a follower that accompanied Sumerian on his adventures fighting vampires with vampires was extremely exciting. But setting up of the underground uh, sanctuary or this uh, Dark Brotherhood lair anew 
was something that I was extremely excited about as well. And uh, um, I, I think that there was a ton of, of potential there for all kinds of, of interesting things. And some of the mythos that I created around this idea of the children of Lorcan, I have continued into the Dark Messenger. That is very much a Centrosi kind of uh, motif or storyline. So um, I am continuing this Children of Lorcan idea a little bit into um, the Dark Messenger, the Dark Messenger Let's Play series, and so we'll we'll see some aspects of this this worship of Lorcan and and sort of the the ideology that that goes around that that whole thing. We'll see that come into evidence a little bit in the Dark Messenger playthrough with Centrosi. So that's kind of all all that tied together. Um, So, one of the questions that came up was a really interesting one, very simple. Do you think Fleet would have a son? And if so, with who? Wow, that is kind of a mind-blowing question, right? Um, There's part of me that can totally see the Fleet of Act 4 having a child. I can totally see that. Um, But, uh, I can see the Sumerian of Act 4 being completely opposed to it, to the point where if, if Fleet were to procreate, Sumerian would potentially eliminate the mother or the baby. I mean, I, I think it would be that profound a reaction from Sumerian, and you, you can only imagine where the story would go from there. Um, given the stalemate that they kind of had at the beginning of Act 4, it's an interesting idea to consider. But what it does, what it brings to mind, though, is even though I hadn't thought specifically about the idea of Fleet having a biological child, um, one of the things that was really important to me for Act 4 was to emphasize the goodness that was inside Fleet. Although he's a chaotic character, although although he's a leader of a mercenary band of, you know, trained killers who are fighting in a bloody civil war, we have all seen examples of Fleet doing really kind of good and wonderful things, uh, enough so that we understand that he has a good heart. And early on in Act 4, I, I needed to make sure that I was able to illustrate the, the kind of person that Fleet was. It was important that we understood that, that this was not th- this was not a 180 degree turn in personality for Fleet. That he was still the good person he'd always been. Um, he was just kind of growing into his independence. So the way that I did that was um, I purchased the plot of land that you can get through the Hearthfire DLC. And uh, it's the plot of land um, Lakeview Manor, which is right near Lake Illinalta. And in the story, Fleet and his mercenary companions work together to build that entire house as a group. And that house is transformed into an orphanage. And so I used a mod um, that allows you to adopt multiple children. And so Fleet basically builds the house. He puts someone in charge there. And then uh, I went back 
to the Honor Hall Orphanage in Rifton and, and took almost all the orphans out of, out of that location and placed them all in Lakeview, in this, this Lakeview Manor or whatever it is. Um, a big part of, of the story early on in Act 4 was going to be setting the stage to say this is the kind of man he is. He establishes a big orphanage and he, he gathers up as many kids as he can afford to and, and has them there. And uh, I had the place staffed with NPC characters to protect them and teach them. And Haldir was going to be a fixture there as a teacher, as, as a person who is kind of a guiding force in the children's lives. There, there was also the sense that, you know, Fleet had gone out of his way to not just build a safe place, uh, you know, a safe home for these children to live in, but to essentially secure that entire valley for the express purpose of creating an idyllic kind of environment for these children to grow up in. Uh, the answer to the question is no, I had not considered um, Fleet having his own biological children, but I had created a fairly sophisticated scenario in which Fleet would essentially adopt most of the orphans in Skyrim and, and have them living in this, in this beautiful place on the lake with, you know, with all of their needs cared for and a good portion of all the money that Fleet made was invested in that effort. And this, this also gets at the whole idea of Fleet putting his thumb in Sumerian's eye. In addition to becoming a vampire, one of the things that, that Fleet does is he takes all of the money that the two of them had earned throughout Act 1, 2, and 3, including the Eye of Falmer, which is worth a lot of money. He cashes it all in and he uses every single septum of it to finance the building of this orphanage. What that essentially does is it, is it, is it has Sumerian coming out of his dormant state kind of bewildered and discovering all of these crazy things have happened. Um, you know, while I was away, Fleet became a vampire. While I was away, he took all of our money and spent it on an orphanage. Um, you know, it, it kind of sets up this really terrific storytelling opportunity, right? Where, where Fleet is just doing all of these things and Sumerian is, is constantly, every time he turns around, there's more consternation as he discovers, you know, not only am I a vampire now, but all the money is gone and he's led the enemy directly to our doorstep and now I've lost my sanctuary and oh my God, you know, it's falling apart and what is this guy doing? He's going to wreck me. But at the same time, he's, he's inexorably, you know, bound to fleet in, in not just a physical way. I mean, they, they are bound to the same body or the vessel together. If he kills Fleet, he kills himself. You know? If he pushes Fleet too hard, if he tries to blackmail Fleet by threatening his loved ones, Fleet has demonstrated um, a willingness to kill himself in order to deny Sumerian the things that he wants or to deny him the leverage that he wants to control Fleet. Fleet is basically making the statement that I cannot be controlled by you. And so all of these things that Fleet does are designed to help him take back control of his life and to put himself on equal footing with 
his brother, who has controlled him for too long. So that that's kind of where that whole thing sits. Um, I was very excited about that, and, and we will actually see aspects of that. We see him building the house in the lost footage. So uh, as the lost footage comes out, you'll, you, you'll be able to see it in this video and maybe subsequent videos where we'll, we'll start to see that. And essentially what these are, these are six or seven episodes that I put together um, that don't have any audio. So they have no audio with them. There's no scripts written. Uh, the, the scripts were in my head, but the audio was not recorded. So what I've decided to do is just publish this stuff as lost footage. I've rendered the videos with without the audio, and we'll play them in the background here and in future podcasts and give you, um, the viewers, um, people who are enthusiastic about the Aranus Arcana story, an opportunity to check them out and decide for yourself what's happening there. You've got my explanation now, but that doesn't mean that... Uh, that I have all the answers. Um, these are just some of my thoughts, and, and this is stuff that's taken directly from my notes. So um, I really hope that this has helped. Uh, again, I, I, I know that I haven't addressed all the questions. Um, I can't possibly address all the questions, but I, I hope that uh, this, this helps. Now, there were a lot of you who also had questions about mods, Mods are a difficult one for me because we cycled through so many mods during the telling of this story um, that it's difficult for me to know exactly where to start. I will tell you, though, that I am going to be um, publishing a list here very shortly, and I'll put that list up. I'm going to focus um, primarily on any mods that had to do with Fleet, Sumerian, and their appearance. So the way that they looked and the things that I use to capture that look. So you can look forward to that. You can also look forward to, um, re I'm, I'm releasing a preset, and there will be a link to the preset in the show notes. This is a preset for Fleet. So if you want to make your character look like Fleet, you can do that. You can use the preset by downloading it and, and using the preset through a, a mod tool like Race Menu. Um, that will allow you to actually either create a character for yourself or an NPC that looks exactly like Fleet. And with the mod list, you'll be able to also use some of the supporting mods so that if you want to have exactly the same uh, kind of hairstyle, you can get that. If you, if you want to have Fleet uh, complete with the winged serpent uh, tattoo on his cheek, you can get that. Uh, all of the ar armor and weapons will be accounted for there. So by mixing those two things together, you should be able to, to, to create something that is very much like the fleet we've, we've come to know and love through the story. So I hope this helps. This was super enjoyable for me. Uh, if you have any additional questions, please feel free to send them in. Use the web form. We are going to keep the Aranus Arcana questions subject type available in the form so that uh, you know any future questions you have are certainly open, and I will try to uh, address those on upcoming episodes whenever it's possible. Well, we have reached the end of another chapter, but not the end of the story. Uh, this has been wonderful for me. Uh, the whole experience of creating this story of, um, I guess, feeling my way around artistic expression through YouTube, through videos, through writing, has been a wonderful exploration for me. 
and continues to be. And uh, this feels a bit um, like closure. (laughs) Uh, You know, it, it is certainly the end of Fleet's story, as I would have told it. But I would certainly invite you to finish Fleet's story however you see fit. And I could not be more grateful and appreciative of all the support I have been given by those of you in the community who've gotten excited about this story. Uh, For those of you who are fellow Skyrim fans like me and fans of the Elder Scrolls, you know that I am here uh, to produce the best content I can for this community, and I'm really looking forward to the next chapter for the continuation of this podcast, uh, for more to come on Couch Warrior TV. Uh, I'm excited to be working with my two best friends in the world, and frankly, I'm excited to continue to interact with all of you out there in the community who uh, like what's going on here. Um, I certainly uh, invite your input. I look forward to hearing from, from you. And so with that, I would like to thank you for taking this journey with me. And until next time, may all that you do be swift, quiet, and deadly. And to all Skyrim assassins, I salute you. Silence is our battle cry. simply cannot be planned. Perhaps this is something of value I have learned from my dear brother. Inside Castle Dower lies a great unknown, but also a blank canvas waiting for my brushstrokes. I can think of no better way to celebrate the glory of the bloody night to come than by attending the burning of King Olaf. Two kings died tonight. One burned and another poisoned. Or perhaps, perhaps I am mistaken and the one-eyed king is Sibirian burning in effigy. A mocking tribute to my own death foretold in poetry and flames. <laughs>